Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 2 of our in-depth series on the intersection of faith and politics. Just having the wrong book in your home or having a call with your loved one who's overseas could land you in a camp. It's an incredibly terrifying situation. Today, I'm joined with Nuria Kasim, a UGA advocate, and Nathan Rusa, a researcher at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, to discuss the treatment of an ethnic minority group in China's Northwest Autonomous Region, Xinjiang. Today, I'm joined with Nuria and Nathan. Do you guys maybe want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm a I'm a researcher at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, mostly looking at sort of the 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 crackdown in Xinjiang, and what we can learn about that from the satellite perspective. Uh, my name's Nuria. I'm a politics and Asian studies student at Melbourne Uni, and I'm an Uyghur woman as well as an Uyghur human rights advocate. So the Guardian reported, like as of the twenty. 20- 4th of September that there were around 400 camps and most people are calling them re-education camps or detention centres. Can either of you kind of explain where this story of suppression kind of begins? So just a really quick overview, I guess, historically, um, Xinjiang on um, East Turkestan is located in Central Asia and it's right on the Silk Road. So this means that historically, Uyghur civilization has interacted with many other cultures and civilizations around the world through trade. In 1878, East Turkestan or the area where the Uyghurs resided was invaded by the Manchu Empire. And in the early 1900s, the Manchus were overthrown by the Chinese. And after that, the Chinese ruled over East Turkestan for about 17 years. Then in 1933 and 1944, the Uyghurs had two really short-lived periods of independence where we had our own sovereign state known as the East Turkestan Republic. However, these states were largely caught up in the geopolitics and power rivalry between the former Soviet Union and the Chinese Nationalist Party and Communist Party at the time. And so as a result, in 1949, East Turkestan was essentially ceded to the People's Republic of China and it was renamed Xinjiang, which literally translates to new frontier or new territory in Chinese. In terms of on a more like personal, like social rather than political level, um, census data from the late 40s and early 50s show that the Han Chinese formed approximately like 5% of the population in East Turkestan. The rest were mostly Uyghurs as well as other Muslim minorities, such as the Uzbeks, Kazakhs, Tajiks, etc. But more recent data from like the early 2010s show that the Han Chinese form around 45% of the local population. So this has been as a result of quite large scale relocation efforts by the Communist Party. So that's just a really brief overview of the history. It goes back centuries and I'm not a historian, but I've just done my best to sort of briefly summarise it. I hope I hope it all made sense. No, that's I really appreciate that. I think because, you know, when we talk about the whole conflict and like what's going on, it's always kind of present date. So it's great to just give it a little bit of context. Nathan, if you have anything to add. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just say the history of Xinjiang is one of these really contested parts about it. The Chinese narrative is that 
basically this always is, always has been, always will be Chinese territory, which is quite, I guess, counterfactual. And it's only sort of been Chinese territory for the majority of time since about the 1750s. And yeah, there's been big stints of non-Chinese control since then. Um, but whenever you look at Chinese historical sort of narratives about Xinjiang, and this is kind of important when you look at what gets preserved and what gets destroyed in the crackdown, it all revolves around this this notion that China has owned Xinjiang for for thousands of years, and that sort of is isn't brought out in history or even in the name of Xinjiang. Yeah, and as someone who actually studied primary school in China, I underwent patriotic education in China. So when I moved to Australia at the age of 12, I had to unlearn a lot of things and I guess rediscover my own history. So it's actually been a really challenging process, but this also means that I can empathize a lot with Chinese people who are really passionately patriotic because I, I've been a part of the system and I kind of see where they're coming from. So I feel like Nathan, because you study the satellites and kind of have been looking at it through time like when did the camps begin to be built and you know where were they kind of located so this this latest wave of crackdown started in about march 2017 there's at least 380 camps that have been built across across xinjiang and that that basically covers every county in the region some counties have more than 10 some have only one but it's it's basically popped up everywhere and it would affect basically every life in Xinjiang. And I know before you spoke about how this is kind of a narrative about how China has owned that region historically, but is there anything more to say about the purpose of these detention re-education camps and like the motivation for them? I would probably consider this detention regime the, the coercive backbone to a broader effort by Chinese authorities to basically extinguish the private and the public parts of Uyghur culture, Uyghur history, and um, Uyghur spirituality even. So it's important to see the detention regime as this incredible human rights abuse, but also this coercive control that allows them to control every facet of life. And basically in Xinjiang, that controlled life is one that doesn't have any Uyghur elements to it. Nuria, as a Melbourne board Uyghur woman and advocate do you see much that you can add to that? Yeah so I definitely agree with what Nathan said it's a it's a program that seeks to culturally assimilate the Uyghurs and if you look at official Chinese propaganda there's this surface level almost tokenistic appreciation of multiculturalism um, they will they reduce the different ethnic minority groups to traditional costumes and dances and music and food on a surface level. But when you dig deeper, you realise that ultimately the CCP sees any ethno-religious diversity that deviates from their official discourse and narrative of nationalism as a threat to China's national security. So that's why it's incredibly worrying because it almost seems as though Xinjiang is a testing ground for this sort of new method of social control, of social engineering, and of a brand new, unprecedented sort of technological surveillance state that I think everyone should find quite threatening and terrifying. Even zooming out from Xinjiang, I guess one of the 
keystones of Xi Jinping's rule has just been this almost pathological need for ideological control. Yeah. And unfortunately, the government in China is so, I guess, Han chauvinist that anyone that isn't Han Chinese ethnically is sort of by default seen as untrustworthy and not conforming to the Chinese values. But it's taken so long for us to actually kind of get the information and it to come out into like the rest of the world. Why did it take so long for it to gain media attention? So that's one of the one of the difficulties and what you see in a lot of aspects of information coming out about this crackdown in Xinjiang. Mm. You can sort of get individual cases of, hey, this mosque has been demolished, this shrine has been demolished, but it's hard to get sort of a regional overview of that and that's the same with the number of people detained the scale of the forced labor in Xinjiang and everything you basically get this very limited sample and from that you have to try to tease out broader trends but I think it sort of speaks to the opaqueness of any information coming out and how much the information environment is controlled by Chinese authorities in Xinjiang that you sort of get a trickle of information, even even the massive build-up of camps and that infrastructure took more than a year to really slowly start to seep out to the rest of the world, at least the scale of the building and the scale of detention that was happening in Xinjiang. Yeah, I definitely agree with what Nathan has said. Um, I think that the reason why this has taken so long to garner widespread attention is mainly twofold. The first is, as Nathan has mentioned, this sort of lack of transparency and suppression of information by the Chinese government. And I think a more personal perspective I can offer on that is that when members of the diaspora or former detainees attempt to speak out about what's happening, um, we face backlash in the forms of our family members being held hostage. Um, we face death threats, etc. So, for example, um, Australian listeners might remember on the project um, in July last year, an Uyghur man named Salam Abdul Salam went on the project to plead with the Chinese government to let his son, who is an Australian citizen, come to Australia. Then the morning after his um, television appearance, his wife was taken to a detention facility. So I think that the very visceral threats that we as Uyghur activists face definitely encourages a culture of silence because as anyone who loves their family I'm sure you can empathize you would do anything you want to keep them safe especially when the situation is so unstable and tense. The second reason why I think this has taken so long to gain widespread attention is Islamophobia. I really do believe that there is this preconceived notion that most western societies have which is that the lives of Muslims, for some reason, elicit less of a visceral reaction from us than when lives of their atheist or non-Muslim counterparts are being threatened. Of course, this is a blanket statement um, and it doesn't apply to everybody, but I definitely think that there is still um, a lot of Islamophobia that permeates most of Western society that perhaps justifies at least some of the apathy that we are seeing towards the Uyghur issue. Mm. You have roots in Xinjiang or China specifically. Do you know many people who have tried to speak out and experienced similar things and the examples you've already given? Yeah, so my mother is Uyghur and so I have a lot of family back in Xinjiang and I essentially grew up there. And this means that I have 
witnessed really close family friends be detained. I have witnessed members of the diaspora, such as Khadunur Siddiq, who is a former teacher in Belgium. Um, she spoke out about the atrocities that she witnessed in the camps, and now her family members have been detained as a result of that. So I think that this, I guess, pushback from the CCP against activism is very visceral and it's it's experienced on a personal level as well. Um, there are so many whistleblowers and activists who have been persecuted like this, which is exactly why it's really important for institutions and organisations such as the Australian Strategic Policy Institute to be releasing reports on this issue because as Nathan has said, I think that the Chinese Communist Party, I guess, holds more leverage over members of the diaspora who have family members back home. So we've kind of known this story as like re-education camps to detention centres or prisons to forced labour. Do we kind of have more evidence of how this story has evolved? I think it depends on sort of whose perspective you're looking from. The Chinese narrative has shifted a few times, I think, in face of increasingly incontrovertible evidence being presented to them. So they've sort of gone from these don't exist, what are you talking about? to these are necessary to help the poverty of the Uyghur people. And then it shifted to these are necessary for counterterrorism, which I, I, th- I think is even more ludicrous. When you look at sort of terrorist plots or terrorist attacks, there's been as many in Australia since 2014 as there has been in Xinjiang. And so to, to respond to, I guess, what you'd call the terrorist threat by detaining likely over a million people, that, that's a very counter counterproductive sort of way to approach it. And then it's sort of gone to the fact that these are closed and everyone's been moved on to bigger and better things, of which turn out to mostly be um, house or residential arrest or forced labour programs. Yeah, and I think a really important point to make is also that for members of the diaspora, we kind of knew that something sinister was going on the moment that we read about these facilities in 2016, 2017. It makes no sense to detain people simply based on their ethno-religious identity without trial or criminal conviction. It's also really important to note there's this one interview given by a Chinese official to the BBC during which he says, you have a group of people that haven't committed a crime, but you know they are capable of committing a crime. Why wouldn't you detain them to try and prevent that from happening, right? And I think that logical paradox epitomises the CCP's approach to Xinjiang. It makes no sense because any human being, by virtue of being alive, you could argue is capable of committing a crime. And once you start implicating people who haven't done anything wrong, I think that sets a really dangerous precedent. So I think the entire rhetoric definitely collapses onto itself the second you dig a little bit deeper than, I guess, the official propaganda of the CCP. And we're hearing murmurs about, like, forced sterilisation and kind of this idea of phasing out Uyghurs. Maybe if you guys could give, like, a few examples of what it's like in these camps. I mean, I guess it's it's really hard to know. You've you've heard a few people that have managed to get out and I think their, their stories are important. Um, but there's so much, I guess, variation within the camps. There is the sort of lower security political indoctrination camps all the way to the high security prisons, and it's really hard to get an idea of what's happening. I think I, um, Nathan makes a really good point, which is that because the situation is so opaque, we don't have 
like the most reliable data that we can directly point to and confidently absolutely assert what is happening but what we do have is testimony from former detainees and victims and I think that um, many of whom are women and I think that their voices are really important. The um, attempt to police women's bodies is one of the most telling signs of genocidal intent because women are physical bearers of the future of the nation, right? And I think this attempt to um, subjugate women not only comes through the uh, allegations of forced sterilization and forced insertion of IUDs, but also through external policies such as um, forcing Uyghur women to marry Han Chinese men, which once again forms a part of a much bigger picture, I think, of attempted population and demographic control, which um, echoes what I said earlier about the large-scale migration of Chinese people to East Turkestan. There's also the removal of Uyghur children from their families, which you've seen in a lot of state-run orphanages and forced boarding schools, mm. especially for the children of people who have been detained. And that's another, I guess, way in which Chinese authorities are trying very much to cut the roots of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. Are either of you fearful when you're speaking out because you're pretty well connected to people who have experienced backlash in targeted ways. Yeah, I've definitely experienced a lot of fear and anxiety. I have had family members detained because of my activism and it's a really difficult burden to bear because on the one hand, I know that I'm in a really unique position where I have a voice and I'm fluent in English and I can articulate what is happening quite confidently but at the same time I'm sure you could try to imagine what it's like knowing that the people you love are suffering because you're trying to stand up for them and for their rights. I haven't been able to see my extended family in over five years. The last time I was there was when my baby cousin was born and now she's about to go to school and so every time I see a picture of her it's a literal reminder of how long it's been since I've seen the people I love and I guess the biggest fear I have is that I'm never going to see them ever again, but it would be selfish for me to let that be a deterrent because there are millions of my people who are suffering and it is only through the sacrifice of activists like me who I guess put their personal feelings aside. It's only through that that we can actually instigate real change. So the fear is incredibly concrete for any Uyghur activists that you see. Um, so definitely spare like a moment of solidarity for us when we do speak out and for people who aren't Uyghurs who the Chinese government don't have as much leverage over I really urge you to do what you can to spread our message because every time I say something it, it poses a direct threat to the people I love whereas for most others that's not the case. Do you love Global Questions? We are a new up-and-coming podcast that is run by young people for young people. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot and it helps us gain the reach that we deserve. I want to move on slightly to forced labour transfers. Um, last time I checked, it was estimated that 80,000 Uyghurs were transferred out of Xinjiang to work in factories across China between 2017 and 2019. What does this forced labour look like and why? 
So forced labor in Xinjiang is a much broader policy than that. So that 80,000 figure is an estimate of how many have been taken out of Xinjiang and sort of put in labor programs in mainland China. But according to official figures, the number of people in similar labor programs that almost certainly amount to forced labor in Xinjiang is in the millions. Mm. And it's this very coercive way of maintaining control. For every 50 workers, there's a mind that they have mandatory WeChat groups where they have to sort of diary their thoughts. There's a lot of political control, a lot of political indoctrination that happens in these. And I think in many ways, the forced labor is a vehicle in which um, that control can be pushed on Uyghur people without detaining all of them. Um, but then there's also the the capitalist sort of imperialist seizing of resources and labor and sort of hum- humanity in Xinjiang. That's another a very another very important aspect of it. I would definitely agree. I think it's important to realize that um, the detention of um, an estimated over one million people is an expensive and difficult to manage project. So I guess. Forced labour is a mechanism through which the Communist Party can sustain this program as they continue to detain more people. Another important thing is the sort of severing of roots of Uyghurs with our homeland by displacing people to foreign cities. I'm sure you can imagine how unsettling that would be to be in a place where people don't speak your language or where you might not have access to halal food and mosques, etc. And I think that distancing Uyghurs from East Turkestan while migrating Chinese people to East Turkestan, China is attempting to well and truly assimilate the Uyghurs into Han Chinese society. Another dimension of this could also be um, the idea that if they can implicate corporations and transnational corporations, in the web of Uyghur detention, perhaps if they become inextricably linked, it will be more difficult for us to untie that web and to free those people. But the allegations of forced labor are incredibly worrying, especially when many brands and products that we are familiar with here in Australia are potentially implicated. And also because it violates so many fundamental human rights um, outlined in normative international law. Do we know kind of what the process is like? Because I read Uyghurs are being sold to factories and it's kind of like contracting, but the money doesn't even go to the person who's working. Yeah, so there seems to be a few different streams in which it happens. There sort of seems to be these large job expos where sort of companies can go to Xinjiang and basically pick out how many workers they need for what. Then there's also these brokers where the local government and sort of third party private brokers get a subsidy for each Uyghur um, labourer they can sort of provide. Um, That being said, I I, I think it's important to note that in most cases, it does seem that Uyghur people in these forced labour programs do receive a wage. But then there's also been a lot of claims that a lot of their wages are then removed in having to pay for their dorm and their food. So... We've got the detention centres and then we've got the forced labour and then we've got the rectifying of mosques and religious sites. So what is actually left in Xinjiang currently? I can actually speak to the last time that I was back in Xinjiang or East Turkestan. So that would have been in 2015, I'm pretty sure. 
what I recall is at every traffic light, there's a camera that takes a photo of the cars that are passing by. I recall literal armoured trucks on the intersection near my family home. Um, Security checkpoints every couple hundred metres where you have to surrender your phone for the guards to rifle through. And that is in Urumqi, in the city where the situation is relatively, I guess, more secure or relatively safer. Um, for the villages, I've heard anecdotal evidence from members of the diaspora that there are places you go where there just aren't any Uyghur boys or men. Um, there, that most of them have been detained. And I think that just from the very sparse contact I've had with my family, there is this looming culture of just fear because just having the wrong book in your home or having a call with your loved one who's overseas could land you in a camp and people are being taken in the middle of the night. It's an incredibly terrifying situation and it's very anxiety inducing. So I think what is left is essentially an Orwellian state where individuals have to fear and watch their every move because just the slightest misstep can be catastrophic. I know that some scholars that have managed that did manage to visit Xinjiang after the crackdown, they said that one of the most stark differences was just how silent everything was. And of course, that's in part the removal of people from society, but it's also the fact that, as, as Nuria was talking about, if you say the wrong thing, if you do the wrong thing, if you have the wrong thing on your phone or in your house, that's reason enough to be detained in this detention regime. They, there's no there's no public life anymore. There's no public space to sort of really do anything other than what's been explicitly allowed by the authorities. All pretty jarring comments. Um, thanks for that insight from the both of you. Sorry, I'm like a bit shocked. Yeah, it's okay. It's really confronting stuff. It's definitely understandable. So this is kind of leads to the global response section about what is kind of currently being done globally and what more can be done, if you think. So I can give like a really quick overview of what is being done at the moment. So I guess on a company level, so the ASPI's Oilers for Sale report instigated a lot of activism around the world. So notably, um, Raphael Glucksmann, who is an MP in the European Parliament, has um, spearheaded this movement to essentially hold companies identified in the ASPR report accountable to investigate their supply chains and to sever ties with those factories. Of course, we have to keep a close eye on those companies to ensure they're not just filing media statements and then not actually following it up with concrete action. Uh, in terms of countries, Canada has recently recognised the situation of the oil holders as genocide. We know that um, a couple months ago, 39 countries led by Germany made a statement in the UN Human Rights Council expressing concern for the human rights situation in Xinjiang as well as Hong Kong. But the other side to that is over 50 countries then hit back and said that they uphold China's right to sovereignty over its internal affairs. So it's a, it's a back and forth tug of war essentially in the US they signed a bill recently that prevented US companies from importing from factories linked to oil force labor. 
And on top of all of that, there is lots of ongoing activism by members of the diaspora like me who are just trying to get more discussion going to get people to recognize the testimony of Uyghurs. But as you can see, it's a coordinated effort, but I really do think that there's a long way to go. What you're seeing is just the, the very start of companies and people sort of realizing what's happening there. It's taken, I guess, a long time for the reports to come from the diaspora Uyghur population to news organizations, to companies involved, to the company's boardrooms. But you are slowly seeing a shift and a very, almost a fear of doing, being involved in this forced labor program in Xinjiang, which I think is probably good. Um, governments, I think, have very limited leverage. This is something that China is very set on. And I don't think there's much that a government could do to change that. It is heartwarming to, in a way to see that right now more countries than ever before have spoken out in opposition to what's happening and right now fewer countries than ever before are supporting Chinese policies. That kind of leads me to the last question what do you think like as listeners and you know people viewing and seeing everything unfold what can we do? There are many boycott movements going on at the moment where people are refusing to buy from brands until they can prove to us that their supply chain does not involve the forced labor of the oil people. I think that's a pretty easy decision to make as a consumer. There is a list of um, forced labor um, factories and um, companies that you should avoid. A simple Google, a simple cross-reference before you um, buy your next, do your next online shop, that's all that it takes. And I guess the last thing that I would say personally is just to send support and love to any Uyghurs that you might have in your life. We're going through such a tough time as a cultural group right now. So if you can donate to a GoFundMe for Uyghur refugees in Turkey, do that. If you know someone, just send them a message because the cultural trauma that we bear right now is immense and there are not many groups in the world who understand what we're going through. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a pleasure and you've both highlighted very unique perspectives and bring different types of research to the table, which I think proves to be a very good way to just present to our audience, like what's actually going on. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Great to, great to talk to both of you. Yeah, you too. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode make sure to check out YDS on social media where you'll find articles and info about our coming events. We'll see you next week.